If you would open with me to Psalm 126. Psalm 126. After a brief break last week, we're back in the Psalms of Ascent, and what we come to today is a Psalm of Restoration. A Psalm of Restoration. And so as people who desperately need to be restored, living in a world that desperately needs to be restored, let's turn to this text and consider it together. Psalm 126. A Song of Ascent. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev, like those who sow sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, open our eyes to see beautiful things in your law. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight and yours alone. I pray for all those who are gathered around your word today. It's in your precious name I pray. Amen. Look with me at verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Now, it's not clear exactly which restoration the psalmist is here talking about. Is this the restoration of Zion and Jerusalem that we talked about a few weeks ago with David returning with the Ark of the Covenant? Is this coming back from exile? Is it some other dramatic reversal in the circumstances of Israel? Some amazing thing that God has done to help his people? It's not clear, but what is clear is that the restoration is so wonderful, so profound in extent and degree, that it seems too good to be true. Could it really be? The psalmist and Israel stand in awe and in wonder. Is this really happening? Am I dreaming? We were like those who dream. On December 8th, about three years ago, I woke up to about six inches of snow here in Jackson, in our house here in Jackson. Now, I've told you I grew up in South Louisiana. My wife grew up here. Snow's a big deal for us. I can maybe three times have I ever woken up to snow, and they've all been way up here in the great north of Jackson, Mississippi. But for our kids, it's absolutely unheard of. And the idea of a snow day is completely foreign. Our oldest, who's actually eight today, so today is her her birthday. Happy birthday, Alex. She's probably sitting at home eating donuts, watching church. Our fifth, uh, she was five years old, our oldest. She, uh, that Christmas, I'm not making this up, she actually asked for snow for Christmas that year, like on her Christmas list, because we had seen in the forecast that it might happen, and so she was really getting her hopes up. So that morning, I walked into a room after I discovered that there was snow on the ground. And being a dad, of course, I woke her up with a rousing rendition of Do You Want to Build a Snowman off the Frozen soundtrack. She was really into that movie, and at one point actually naming her braids Elsa and Anna. You'd think she'd enjoy it, but she was not amused in the slightest. Um, Once she finally came out of the fog and started realizing what I was saying, She still couldn't comprehend what was going on outside. She had never experienced it before. 
She was half asleep, and in that disorienting fog of slumber, she could barely fathom that it was true. Like I said, a snow day was so foreign to her to be, in a sense, otherworldly. And I wish I had a picture of the look on her face when she looked out the window and her jaw hit the floor. Friends, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Half asleep, waking up, trying to comprehend what is going on around us. I'd like for us to consider two things from this psalm today. Two things from the slow and sudden restoration that we read in Psalm 126. With our hearts awakened by the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, with our hearts awakened by the good news, we can stand in awe of our sudden restoration so that we can sow through the tears of our slow restoration. We stand in awe of our sudden restoration so that we can sow through the tears of our slow restoration. And my hope is that as we stand in awe of what God has done for us and in the past, that that would give us hope to be faithful while we work and wait for what He will do. Looking back and looking forward. So first, let's stand in awe of our sudden restoration. We see this in verses 1 through 4. We've already looked at verse 1, so look with me at verses 2 and 3. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. The psalmist looks back to this former restoration, and it manifests itself in joy and laughter. It is manifested physically. The tongue, the mouth, it opens up. This is a verbal, uncontainable, ecstatic joy that flows from thankfulness of what God has done. Flows from thankfulness. In fact, one commentator on this passage says that that's what joy is. That joy is the expression of abundance. When we have experienced abundance, it expresses itself in joy. If we recognize that we have more than enough of something good, of something necessary, that we need or those that we love need, we cannot help but express that in joy. Look with me at verse 2. That word for joy, our tongue with shouts of joy, that word joy has with it this sense of a reverberating sound where there was once silence. Verse 3, we were glad. That word glad carries with it the sense of brightness and light where there is once darkness. The expression of joy out of thankfulness for what God has done. Friends, how often do we speak of joy? Not just feel it, but speak it. Give voice to it. How often do we tell the stories of joy of how God has provided for us, back to God in thankfulness, but how often do we tell those stories to one another so that we can rejoice with one another in what God has done? Do we notice when we have more than enough? Do we stop and take notice when we have been given more than enough? Those who have experienced profound loss and true lack, true need, may have something to teach us about what it means to rejoice. 
what it means to rejoice. If we've never known true want, if we've never known true need, perhaps we have a lot to learn about true joy. The Avet brothers sing it this way, I am sick with wanting, and it's evil how it's got me. And every day is worse than the one before. The more I have, the more I think I'm almost where I need to be. If only I had a little more. If only I had a little more. There's true lack, right? True need. And then there's the sickness that's described here. One is not having what we need to live. The other is not being able to be satisfied with what we have. Perhaps you felt both right? Perhaps you've felt both simultaneously. What Israel and the psalmist here do is stand in awe and thank God for what he has done, and they stop and they stand in gratitude. They take notice of what God has done in the past. And notice here, it's not only Israel that takes notice. Look with me at verse 2, the end of verse 2. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Do you remember a few chapters ago in Psalm 123 when the nations were mocking and showing contempt towards Israel? Now they're honoring God and honoring Israel. Can you imagine the type of restoration that would have to take place for these nations around Israel to give glory to God and to look at Israel and say, yes, your God has done this for you. What a witness. Now look with me at verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. This phrase here, which also um, is at the beginning in verse 1, same phrase, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream, when the Lord restored our fortunes. And then in verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord. This is difficult. In previous translations, it's been uh, rendered something like restore us from captivity. But what we have to see here is that restore and fortune, so he's praying restore our fortunes, restore and fortune carry the same root. And that root has to do with this idea of turning or a change of direction. And so it could go something like this, turn our turning, restore our restoration, begin and complete the process of our change of direction both physically, spiritually. A change of direction, turn our turning. And so how does the psalmist illustrate this? Look at the second half of verse 4, like streams in the Negev. Now, the Negev was a 4,500-square-mile desert, an arid region just south of the Judean hills. Incredibly dry. Israel couldn't do typical agriculture there. However, during the rainy season... All of a sudden, these dry creek beds would be suddenly flushed with violent, rushing streams, dramatically altering the landscape of the Negev. Can you imagine it? The Negev suddenly experienced relief in life as a place that was known for its brutality and for its death. Yet all of a sudden, here comes life. This is the sudden change that Israel had experienced and was praying to experience again. You notice the change from verses 1 through 3 to verse 4? He says, Lord, you have done these things. And then he turns to God and says, Lord, restore us again. Like streams in the Negev. 
this rushing, overwhelming, uncontrollable, swift act of God that changes the landscape. The purpose of this psalm, Psalm 126, is for us to remember the reversal and the dramatic change that God can bring. The dramatic reversal and change that God can bring. Redeemer, remember your restoration. Look back and remember your restoration. In the words of Ellie Holcomb, don't forget to remember. Don't forget to remember. Now, we have to distinguish here between nostalgia and true memory. Nostalgia, right? It's that sentimental longing, this affection, this bittersweet feeling for people, place, or thing in the past. Nostalgia is why I love the show Stranger Things. Nostalgia is why one of our favorite things to do around the house right now is pull out the old NES Nintendo system and play Mario and Ninja Turtles. Nostalgia is why on my phone I have a playlist called Nostalgia that I've put together over the course of years. It's nine hours of music from the late 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Nine hours of music. Now, I can guarantee you that I was not enjoying pop culture in the late 80s. I I was born in 86. So why in the world would I have these bittersweet feelings of nostalgia for a time that I didn't even cognitively experience? Recently, a professor of philosophy, psychology, and neurology put out an article talking about nostalgia, and he says that it's often directed at times and places that we never even truly experienced, but for some reason we consider to be ideal. Nostalgia, then, is more of a manifestation of imagination than it is of true memory. Does that make sense? It's one thing for me to hear a song from middle school and have bittersweet feelings about the way things were. It's quite another for me to recognize and remember the tangible ways that God sustained me through a very difficult season of life. Do you see the difference? To recognize and remember the tangible ways that God sustained me through that time. One imagines life as we wish it had been. The other rests in the hope that God was with us even though it was what it was. What we wish it had been versus God being with us even though it is what it is, it was what it was. Friends, do you remember? Do you remember what it was like to be lost? To experience the joy of what it means to be found? Maybe you're like me and you came to faith at a very early age. So you don't remember a distinct change, a distinct restoration in your heart. Praise God if that is your story. That's my hope for all the kids who grew up in this church. But even then, along the way, God has restored you and redeemed you all along the way. Do you remember those moments? Do you remember times where things have been restored that had fallen apart? And do we stop and reflect and give thanks for that? No, it was not all good, was it? But if you are a believer, if you are a child of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, A sudden restoration has occurred in your soul, like streams in the Negev. A sudden restoration, perhaps when you were unaware. 
Friends, after thousands of years of waiting, streams of living water rushed into Israel through a little child in Bethlehem while, is, while Bethlehem was sleeping. As the disciples were holed up in fear of retribution after Christ ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit was poured out, changing the landscape of the world. Friends, while Abraham was asleep, God accomplished his restoration and his salvation. Do you remember? Abraham is asleep. The animals are laid apart. And God walks through making a covenant with Abraham, saying, if I break the covenant, I will die. And if he breaks the covenant, I will die. That's not how covenants were supposed to work. Two people were supposed to walk down the middle, but one was sleeping. A sudden restoration was, occur was occurring while he slept. Friends, we were dead asleep. <laughs> Abraham was asleep. We were dead asleep in our trespasses and our sins when God accomplished a sudden restoration for our souls. In a moment, in a moment on the cross and in the resurrection. And as we wake to this sudden change, we are like people who dream. We look and we stand in awe of this sudden restoration that we have in Jesus. But the restoration is not complete, is it? We know this and we feel this. We can tell. Which is why we sow through the tears of our slow restoration. We stand in awe of our sudden restoration, but friends, we persevere and we sow through the tears of our slow restoration. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. There's a sudden shift in imagery in the psalm, right? Instead of the flash flood, a sudden flash flood, all of a sudden now we have the image of toil, trouble, pain, faithfulness, and hope of farming. The imagery here is of planting seeds. One is a sheer gift of heaven. The other is a call to watchfulness, a call to work, a call to faithfulness. Friend, it's, it is our memory of God's sudden work in verses 1 through 4 that gives us hope to persevere through the tears of verses 5 and 6. We remember the sudden work so that we persevere through the slow work. In the abundance of our society, we may not really remember what it's like or know what it's like to, to experience the risk of an agricultural lifestyle, right? Which is the majority of the Bible is written from this perspective, from an agricultural culture. Friends, if people would have to literally lose their wealth into the ground, not just to reap a return, not just to gain a return, but to feed themselves, to feed their families, and if there was no yield from sowing these seeds, it was not as easy as just buying more seed. Their lives were in the balance as they waited and dependent, depended on this growth. It's been said that Mount Zion and Jerusalem, the kind of growth that Mount Zion and Jerusalem experience is that of like a perennial, right? It flowers every year, and its first flowering is good and true, right? But it doesn't hold a candle to what it will be when it comes in its maturity. 
that each and every year the flowering is more beautiful as the plant grows towards maturity. So David's Zion was wonderful when he brought the Ark of the Covenant back in, but those blooms do not compare to what is fulfilled in Jesus, and those blooms do not compare to the new Jerusalem and our new heavens and our new earth. This restoration is growing, it's slow, it's botanical. It's planting, it's seeds. This is our tension, right? We're already citizens of Zion. We are already living in this garden and we taste its joy, but we walk through a veil of tears towards its maturity. We walk in a veil of tears towards the maturity. And so in the moment, what do we do? We sow. We sow. We're patient. Remember what we hear in James chapter 5, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Here's what we're saying. The coming of Jesus is going to be sudden, right? Like a thief in the night, unexpected. But we hear over and over and over again that the coming of the kingdom will be slow. Like a seed, like a mustard seed, growing down deep, and slowly blooming, slowly growing. I watched in awe as my neighbors spent three or four years of Saturdays. It seemed like every single Saturday they were in the yard from the beginning of the day until the very end. It was extraordinary. Laboring, cutting, cultivating. When they moved in, the yard was already beautiful. It was big and mature, but they had a different vision, right? They had a new vision, and so they pruned, they cut back, they replanted, they opened it up for more sunlight, they opened it up so the kids had more room to play. And I watched in perplexed admiration because I don't, there's not a bone in my body that has any desire to do any of that. We're talking like taking each brick that lines the driveway, taking it out, replacing the dirt underneath, lining it up, leveling it three or four years, every single Saturday. They tirelessly transformed their entire yard. And a few months ago, we got a chance to sit with them on their back porch, right? And enjoy the fruit of their labor, of their blood, sweat, and tears. Sometimes restoration is sudden, but sometimes it is painfully slow. Sometimes it is slow. How do we live in the mundane while we wait for the extraordinary? How can we be faithful in the already while we still anticipate the not yet? What is the shape of everyday life this side of the trumpet call? Friends, Psalm 126 reminds us that restoration is less like the McRib sandwich and more like Big Elbert's barbecue. Hours and hours and hours of low and slow right? That is restoration. Extraordinary Christian joy can come through years of unimpressive, often backbreaking, costly, and faithful planting and watering and waiting. As we believe and as we walk this pilgrim way, we trust God with the simple means that He provides, right? 
so that God's power and grace can come to us in these jaw-dropping, amazing ways, right? But it can also come to us in quite ordinary ways. He works without our help like streams in the Negev, and sometimes he puts our hand to the plow and says, don't look back and don't give up. Don't look back and don't give up. He moves in mysterious ways, and he also moves in not-so-mysterious ways. He moves in uncommon wonders, but he also moves in common grace. There's a field before us. And does somehow our faithfulness bind, this is important, does somehow our faithfulness bind him to a particular outcome? Like if somehow we're faithful, that it binds God to a certain type of restoration for us? Never, friends, never. Please hear me. Many have wrecked their faith thinking that God somehow owes them something for obedience or faithfulness. However, Scripture is clear that God does often bless faithfulness and obedience in the little things. He often does bless obedience and faithfulness in little things. Why? He has always shown himself to be a God who uses unimpressive people, things, and actions to bring himself glory and to change the world. That is who our God is. He will use the simple faithfulness, the head down, plowing faithfulness. So friends, what do we take away from this? I just want to leave you with two thoughts to take away. In John chapter 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Friends, did you catch that? Only if it dies will it grow. Only if the seed dies will it grow. As we confront the inevitability of our own death, as we confront the fragility of our mortality, we must remember that though we sow these earthly bodies, all of us will sow these earthly bodies into the ground. For those who are in Christ, they will be raised in new life and in resurrection. For those who belong to Jesus, they will be raised in new life. And so we do not fear. For we are sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death cannot separate us from our Savior, friends. And so we do not fear. We do not have to fear. Secondly, you should be asking, well, what, are, what is the sowing? Like, we're sowing, but what are we sowing? Do you remember Luke chapter 8 and Matthew 13 when Jesus tells the parable of the sower? It hints at it in our call to worship from Isaiah 55 as well. What is it that we are sowing and what is it that will actually lead to life? What will grow things? In Luke chapter 8, Matthew 13, parable of the sower, Jesus says that the thing that is sowed, the seed that is scattered, is the very word of God. That he is good for his word and it will grow and it will reap a harvest. And if you remember from that parable, the soil, right? 
whether it's good soil or rocky soil or soil that's infested with weeds or no soil at all, that's the condition of our hearts. And whether we have ears to hear, whether that seed can penetrate and grow deep roots to sustain us and stabilize us in this world and to give us life in the Holy Spirit. The seed is the very word of God. I just want to encourage you to sow those seeds. See them implanted in your own soul. Sow them in your family. Sow them among your friends. Sow them among one another. And no matter what happens, no matter what's the result, right? Because why? Only God can prepare that soil. God is the only one who can even make that good soil that can lead to growth. It's his harvest. All we do is sow with no no control over the result. That is the work of faithfulness, and sometimes that is the work of tears, knowing that we can rest, that his word will not return void, that his word will grow, that this seed is good. It will do its work of the slow and sudden restoration. I'm going to be completely honest with you guys. COVID-19 has been really hard for me. Um, I'm an extrovert, so yes, I love being around people, but more than that, I actually really enjoy large crowds of people. And in regards to my job and pastoring, guys, this, like, talking on the phone and being away and not being with people, it's just not, it's not for me. It's been very, very hard You combine that with some people in my family who have been vulnerable at different times. We've been very careful. We've laid low. One friend, one deacon here in our church, as I was talking to him about this and how I was feeling about this, he said, it sounds like most things that you really enjoy have been taken away for the moment. Yeah. It's really been the case. And so what I had to do then was start what felt like just start sowing seeds into the void, which was the Internet. And so for 17 weeks, I just record these videos and I send them out to all the kids in our church and all the kids in our community. And I'm learning how to deal, you know, brushing up on editing skills, learning how to use microphones, learning how to use my wife's camera. She's a photographer, so that helped a ton. But at each week I did it, it was just like, okay, well, there's no one there. I'm just looking into a camera. It was hard. 17 weeks later, I got a call. I got a text message said, hey, my son would like to talk to you on the phone. And I'm like, oh, okay. I pick up the phone and I call. And a mom and her son talked to me on the phone. And it made it all worth it. It made it all worth it. 17 weeks. As this family watched and discussed Scripture and prayed together, something stirred in the heart of a little boy in their family. The lesson was on Luke 21. It's one of the strangest apocalyptic like passages in the Bible. This is not one that makes it into the Jesus Storybook Bible, right? And yet, God was already at work, right? And what this boy expressed is a heart of worship, faith in Jesus Christ, repentance for sin, and his own need for a Savior. Friends, he made a profession of faith. 
from my end, 17 weeks of toil and tears was all of a sudden worth it. From God's perspective, something very different was going on. His parents had planted, right? The covenant community had watered. I might have done a little bit, but who gave the growth? God gave the growth. God gave the growth. His word, the seed of God's word, did something. A lifetime of faithfulness in the word and love, the love of Jesus, and a moment, right? Do you see it? Do you see the slow and suddenness of restoration? It's in a moment, and it's long-term. Friends, John Calvin spoke of our restoration this way. God will not just wipe away the tears from our eyes, but will diffuse inconceivable joy through our hearts. Let me read that again to let it sink in. God will not just wipe away the tears from our eyes, but will diffuse inconceivable joy through our hearts. The restoration of all things is not just the absence of sin, the absence of pain, the absence of injustice. It will be the absence. But restoration is so much more than the absence of something. It's the replacement with something more good and true and beautiful, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be restoration. Restoration is the flowering of inexpressible joy for us in the presence of God that we will be with him and that he will renew his creation. It's the fruition of this life-giving garden of growth that he is working in us and through us towards a new creation, towards a new garden. So we can read Galatians chapter 6. Whatever one sows, he will also reap. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season he will reap if we do not give up. Redeemer, don't grow weary in doing good. God is doing something behind the scenes. Don't give up. I don't know all the trials, all the tears that you are facing. I can't imagine. But I do know a Savior who has experienced them too. I know a Savior who has experienced them all too. And He shares both his tears and his joys with us. We may sow, we may reap, we may see a little bit in this life, but this is his harvest that he graciously shares with us, this harvest of joy, this harvest of peace. And he calls us to participate with him. Sharing in his tears, sharing in his joy as he brings in the harvest. And so I pray that we would be thankful and full of awe as we see what God has done And that that would encourage us and give us hope as we're faithful and as we work and we wait for what God will do. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have done great things for us, especially in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you so much for your restoration of our hearts We long for more. We long for you to restore us again. And we long for a restoration of our world. Heavenly Father, restore us again and restore us completely. And we know that you will. And it's in your precious name that I pray. Amen.